Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they think deeply about their presentation craft, and they sometimes pick where to attend based on the beauty of the university's brochure, or that they are getting to the age where strangers wish them a cautious Happy Father's Day. Maybe the last one's just me, your aging host, Ben Rush. Up top, we got another teammate. Friend and fellow science communication enthusiast, Lauren Schrader has joined the team to help with audio production, website development, and more. Welcome to the team, Lauren. With two brilliant pals helping out, the podcast and the business behind the podcast are growing in capabilities. Now, for our episode. When I interviewed our guest, he was a professor at the University of Rhode Island, or URI, for the acronym we love in science. As of today, when this episode comes out, June 21st, he's starting his new exciting position at Florida International University, or FIU. As you'll hear, our guest is fully deserving of this new position. He is thoughtful, open, and fun. You'll find out why we are best friends. And yes, Brian, we are best friends now. Today's episode is with the wonderful Brian Dewsbury. Thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, like always, I'm going to go ahead and ask you for your name and the pronouns you prefer. So, my name is Brian Dewsbury. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. Fantastic. Could you give us a physical description of yourself? I am about six feet tall. Um, I am currently wearing a blue long sleeve shirt um, with jeans. I am about, I'm, and my son says I'm dark brown. I usually just say black. Um, seven year olds and the descriptions, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I have black eyes, <laughs> a shaved, completely shaved head, partly by choice, <laughs> and uh, and a full beard. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, any identities you'd like to highlight? Um, I, I guess I'd like to highlight that I'm from the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. That's where I'm from. I'm of, I'm of African descent, but that's where I'm from. Uh, and your positions and roles on your campus. I am currently an associate professor of biology in the Department of Biology at the University of Rhode Island. Fantastic. Um, and speaking of your beard, too. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's what you picked up on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the hard questions on the podcast. Um, how long have you had that style of beard? Every image that I've seen of you is like that style of beard. It's, it's kind of signature, I feel like. Well, I mean, it's it's. Good to know that I'm good at scrubbing the internet of stuff. Um, <laughs> so I think, oh, you know what? Actually, I know. When I was um, about to, when I was preparing to do my comprehensive exams for my PhD, um, so I don't know, that was year two, I think. Um, I told the students I was teaching that I won't cut my beard until I pass the exam, Right. Of course, I was definitely hoping I passed it the first time, which I did. But <laughs> um, so I just let it grow out. I, I know I told him if I passed it, because I remember I had lab like right after to teach lab. 
I, if I pass it, I would let them cut it. Um, and so, <laughs> so I just let it grow for, I think, you know, I was preparing for like five months, six months, and I just let it grow. And, and then they cut it with like blunt scissors. So it looked terrible, you know, but then I just let it grow back out and um, I, I just sort of kept it ever since. Um, my wife protested for a while, but I think she just gave up. <laughs> and yeah. seeing that I'm still married, I'm going to choke that up as a win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now that you, you're hearing someone come to you and be like, that's your signature look. Like what, ha- what would happen if you didn't have it? I think people would lose you. Like now you could, might be able to make like a little icon of yourself just like with the beard or something like that. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the day will come when it will no longer be my signature look, or maybe it'll just be fully gray at some point. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Like it, it's, I don't think of it so much as a signature look and more as this is a very easy thing to maintain with shaving cream and a Mac three <laughs> every couple of days, <laughs> 10 minutes and I'm done. Right. So when yes. I was in undergrad, you know, it was every week and a half, you had to go to the barber and wait and sit and get it edged out. And, you know, it's fine, but um, this is a very cheap hairstyle. <laughs> I want your <laughs> listeners to know that. Yeah. I feel like that's some of the, the grad uh, student mentality that has like gone on. Like, this is cheap and efficient. I need it all the time. Um, awesome. Thanks for uh, indulging me <laughs> in that question. Um, so I am going to ask you, Possibly the toughest question. Um, could you give us a two-minute research pitch of what you do? Sure, sure. Um, so, so my lab is called Science Education and Society. It's 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 um, broadly titled on purpose. Um, we are interested in the ways in which um, classrooms are places where equity can take place, and curriculum designs can can promote that. Uh, but we're also interested in how equity in wider society impacts what happens in the classroom. So that um, bi-directional relationship is essentially what we study. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a formal classroom. We look at um, informal classrooms or anywhere education is really taking place. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm definitely going to get to that. Uh, I do want to back up and go to childhood with my favorite question, which is, who was your first crush? And okay, so I won't say her name because Trina is a small place. <laughs> I feel like this might come back to haunt me when I run for office. Anyway, um, so <laughs> it was uh, um, Standard Five, I believe. Yeah, Standard Five. Which so we just to give you a little bit of context here. So in the Caribbean, the education system uh, follows the British model. Um, so up until you're 10 or 11 years old, you go into you know, primary school and then you go into secondary school from 11 to 18 or whatever. And that, that so secondary school is essentially what in the U.S. you would consider middle and high school, but it's all one school. Right? Um, so standard five is really the end of primary school. And I remember there was there was a girl in that class who I I was about to say love, but I'm just going to say liked a lot because honestly, at that time in my life, that that pretty much (laughs) was enough, (laughs) was enough of a thing to have. Um, And and the thing is with Standard 5 though, Ben, is it's actually a pretty serious time because there's an exam that you would take at that time that would determine which secondary school you would be allowed to go to. And 
if you if you want to think about it, of there's a range of secondary school quality and types and things like that. Where you ended up was could have been a big determinant of of how your life would turn out, you know, which is a really unfortunate thing to think about at 11. I mean, we didn't know it at 11, but your parents knew it. So there's a lot of angst around that time period. And so that whole year, you're doing a lot of practice exams and things like that. So I I don't know if this stress contributes to the crush. I don't know how it impacts that question, but I just want you to know it was a high stress time. But she was she was cute, which was really all they needed to have a crush on somebody at 11. So. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, it's like maybe you also like the book bag a little bit or they got like a Power Rangers bunch box. That's it. It's a bit more than a book bag. All right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> when did you start getting into science? Because your, your path has veered a little bit. It hasn't been like a standard trajectory, which is fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, were you fascinated by the ocean since you're so close and you wound up researching that later on? I don't think I was so much fascinated with the ocean when I was in Trinidad. I mean, I liked it recreationally, um, but I, I wasn't in Trinidad in awe of the ocean and say, oh, one day I would like to study you. Um, what, what my mother told me is that from a very young child, I was always into like earth stuff. <laughs> right i was the kid who would go get the worms and dig up the plants and you know follow the ants to wherever they went and it, it was just all very interesting so in fact even that same standard five year that crush year um i was the class science prefect i remember like i had to take care of the aquaria and do some things with that you know so i, I mean so I, my science love was more from the i liked environmental things you know and um I, I kept at it. Like I kept, as I went on to secondary school, I kept at it. W- what I actually found interesting, Ben, is I, I don't think I was ever really stellar at science. Like I wasn't an A student throughout. You know, I got Bs and, you know, I did well enough to, to you know, for people to say, oh, this is a possibility for you. But people who knew me well, my teachers thought I would go into something like English or law or political science. Um, I, I seem to be in their eyes better at those subjects than I was at science. And again, I wasn't bad at science, but it wasn't, I wasn't just flying off the charts with this stuff, you know? Um, but I, I, I did towards the end of my secondary school years, um, really get into environmental conservation. And I, I actually don't remember why, honestly, but I just know I did. And I, the, the values of that were important to me. I had friends who felt the same way at, a couple of local organizations I was an adjunct part of. And so when I applied to college, I wanted to do a, a major that would allow me to do environmental science. Um, do note that, though, at the time, environmental science, in my mind, was just conservation. Um, one of the beautiful things about going to a liberal arts college, um, well, at least the college I went to, was was you started to see that there's so many different ways you could think about a conservation career. You know, there were environmental engineers, there were um, environmental, um, uh, like permitting, you know, that worked for the state government. There was basic research. There was, there was conservation science. I mean, um, I was completely naive to the breadth of things, but I, what I did was every summer I would do a different kind of internship around environmental science-y type things. 
And in, in the hope that one of those things would let me see what's the thing that's really going to turn me on, you know, where, where I'm going to really follow for real. So, yeah. Was it through all those like summer internships that you found out about Morehouse? No, 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 no. Those summer internships were at Morehouse. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I found out about Morehouse while I was in Trinidad. So, um, do you want me to tell you why I have followed? Please, please okay. <laughs> I was anticipating the question. <laughs> uh, so I, um, at the end of secondary school, um, I, I knew, well, I knew I wanted to go to college, right? But the exams you take at the end of secondary school are pretty intense. Um, at the time, they were called advanced level and they were run by Cambridge University in England. Um, and it, like the... The depth of the material you had to master was equivalent to like the first two years of college. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to come to the U.S. or go abroad at that time. At least in the beginning, I was mostly planning to go to the local university, which is very, very good. Um, but speaking of crush, I was in love with somebody at the time <laughs> who had migrated to the U.S. I, I think a combination of the fact that I knew... I would have more options if I studied in the U.S., like more major options, more opportunities for postgraduate training and things like that. Plus, she was living in the U.S. at the time, played a major role in my decision to apply to U.S. colleges, right? So I, I took a year off after high school. My best friend and I took a year off after high school to to prepare for the SATs and and, and apply and so you have to remember, this is 1998, 1999, right? Um, like Hotmail was like still the email address of choice for people. Like I, I don't think, I don't even think I had a computer at home at the time, right? You would go to an internet cafe to do this stuff, you know, because it just wasn't, there was not ubiquitous thing. Internet was now scientific. Remember the dial-up noise? Anyway, so, so my best friend and I, wrote literal letters, which sounds so dated to say now, right? But we wrote literal letters to about 40 to 60 universities across the U.S. Um, and I remember we had this big book, I think it was Peterson's Book of Higher Ed, and you'd have all the list of the different universities and colleges. And we're like, we have no idea what we're doing, right? We just, <laughs> we, oh, we heard of this place, let's apply, right? And so we get all these brochures, um, of the different colleges. And we, we, we kind of decided, like, we'll apply to colleges based on two things. Will they give scholarships to international students? And how nice is their brochure? <laughs> because <laughs> the, the effort you're willing to put into your marketing materials says a lot about your attention to detail, right? It's the same thing so, with websites. <laughs> right? So we, we whittled our list down to a privileged 15 um, or 10 or so we applied to. And uh, I mean, Ben, honestly, it was, okay, brochure aside now, okay, you already applied, right? Now it's all about the money because we're coming from international, you know, country and, you know, we we're both middle-class-ish, but once you do the exchange rate, like we couldn't pay tuition money here. Like we just couldn't do that, right? So sometimes people ask about, oh, did you go more house, you know, number one historically black college? And nah, they gave me a free ride. Like what what part of free? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't understand what this is not even a discussion, right? Tuition, room and board. I will see you Monday, right? 
So um, I, I did get some partial scholarships from other places. FIU actually had given me a partial. St. Lawrence University up in upstate New York. I think Pace University. There are a couple of them. University of Chicago gave me a really, really nice rejection letter. It was beautifully written. I have to. I think I may still have it in my bedroom at home. Was it the same like fonts and design that you really liked about the brochures? I have to say it was. I have to say it was. It, they're, they're nothing if not consistent. Right? <laughs> the beauty in the in the marketing, beauty in the rejection, man. So, um, but uh, you know, so Mohos you know, really gave me a, a full tuition room and board, um, which is I've obviously come to realize later in my life how huge that was to be able to get that degree with no debt. Um, there was always there was already a pretty large or decently sized Caribbean and African community there. So there, there was a good sense of belonging to get there, ways to sort of transition a bit more easily. Um, but yes, it was at Mohouse that the whole internship thing began. Fantastic. Yeah, and you were saying uh, that it was really opening your eyes to all different sorts of things within like environmental sciences. Were there something that really struck you as a new possible route? Well, it, it was an evolution. It was an evolutionary process because I, I think when I got there, I realized that I didn't actually know what I wanted to do um, specifically, right? I was seeing all these amazing things, but I, I didn't know actually what it would look like. And in fact, because of the same crush, <laughs> my plan was to get the degree, do a master's degree, and then go back to Trinidad, right? And get married and all that good stuff, right? Um, clearly, plans changed. Um but but what was good, I, I think, was I think I embraced the fact that I didn't know. And so I allowed myself to have different experiences that might. And this is actually the same advice I give students today. Try to open yourself up to as many diverse experiences as you can. And you, something in one of those things will pique your interest in a way that other things happen. Right. So, you know, I spent some time with Sierra Club. It's like, hmm, no, nah, not my cup of tea. Um I spent some time working with a consultancy company who would go out into the uh, northern Georgia forest and do environmental permitting. A lot of fun, um, but it, it wasn't really intellectually stimulating. Um, I did some uh, small pond research in one of my mentors' lab, and that was a lot of fun. And actually, that got me interested in research. And it was one of his postdoc postdoctoral associates who said to me, that if I really wanted to get into conservation work, it makes sense to better understand how the environment works because you're in a better position to help when you get it versus if you were just like, you know, um, just save it kind of thing, right? <laughs> so so my last internship, I was at the Smithsonian um, uh, Research Center. Sorry, Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. That's the one in Edgewater, Maryland. Um, and that was a hot summer, but it was a really fun summer. Um, I, I would even say that that's what got me into grad school. Like having that on my CV was was what made people interested. So yeah, I'm already impressed. I had imagined that there'd just be that super fun to be connected to that institute in some way. Yeah, my my mind was like, oh, you got to see all these different fossils and stuff that they have. You're somewhere else. But you're still doing cool <laughs> stuff with it. After you're doing all these summer experiences, did you go directly into grad school or did you have a little bit of time off? No, I went directly. Yeah, I, I went directly. Um, it was, yeah, I remember my summer senior year at Mohos 
was the ultimate senioritis. Um, I took the minimum amount of credits, <laughs> um, was done with all, I mean, the real gateway class for that degree was biochemistry. So once that was done in the fall, GREs were done. I had a few grad school interviews. Um, I had already accepted FIU. I mean, the classes that were taking were fun. Actually, that's where I learned to scuba dive. I took it as a class <laughs> my last semester. You know, I, I, I had a great time at Morehouse. I really, really did. But when, by the time graduation came, I, I, and I don't know if you feel this in your life at different stages of your life, but you get to a point where this is over and I'm ready to move on. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just I, I did what I needed to do while I was here and now this is over and it is time to move on. And I just really had that feeling, you know. So, you know, graduation, had the day, had the parents over and all of that stuff, but then I was actually on the first plane. <laughs> the next day, the first plane out of Atlanta um, <laughs> to go back home just to take a break before grad school. So I came back up to Miami the, uh, the end of that summer. So. Yeah, was th- that transition um, from Trinidad and Tobago to uh, Morehouse or uh, from Morehouse to Florida difficult for you at all? Or were there any like adjustments you had to really manage? Well, th- there were definitely a lot of adjustments. I, 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 I don't know if I'd go as far as to say very difficult, maybe slightly difficult. There were definitely some uh, positives that were helpful. Um, having other Trinidadians at the school was helpful who were sophomores and juniors, you know, that, that was, that was very helpful. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the things with tuition room and board and living on campus is your existence is very narrow, right? I mean, basically kind of going from dorm to class, to gym, to cafeteria, you know, so I think it would have been a different thing if you had to find an apartment and get a car and do all of that stuff, you know, and I had visited America quite a few times um, before I came to Mars as a young man, right? It was always in a tourist capacity, and it was never for longer than two, three weeks, maybe four, depending on what it was. So now you're sort of living, living in America, right? There's no, you're not going here to shop and go to Disney World and that stuff. Like you're living, living, you have to like live your life. So, so I think it, it wasn't so much, I think, the transition to America. It's almost like transitioning into an independent young man was was more the thing, right? And and especially when you grow up in a home that's that's fairly conservative, um, and you grow up with all these values, mostly Christian values, right? Now you now you by yourself and you have to actually ask, like, are they in fact your values or were they just what you grew up with? Right? These these are some enduring exploratory questions that you don't realize you, you end up having to ask yourself, but you do, you do. Um, there's a term in psychology to call emerging adults. And, you know, I don't want to get into lecture mode here, but, but it, it's, it's really, um, I think it really hits a needle on the head in terms of what that time of life is like. And so that, that is what I think I had to deal with. Less the it's America thing, you know, because that's, this would have happened if it was Netherlands, right? So, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is similar experience. You know, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then went to school at Indiana University for undergrad in Bloomington, which is, you know, two, two and a half hours away. But it's just, it's that distance where, okay, I got to figure out everything out on my own. And it is surprising the distance, like the actual physical distance, the amount of time that it takes to travel, no matter, no matter where I have been, 
it's almost irrelevant. It's just like, I am physically separated from family and friends back home. Therefore, I have to grow no matter where I go. So another thing that I know about you, they haven't mentioned yet, is uh, your your dad was a Baptist minister, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we first met, I was remarking about how great of a speaker that you are. Um, and that is, I've heard that so many times from my department too, after like you gave a talk to us. And so I'm, I'm curious too, either in your undergrad time or in graduate school, did people come to you and say like, I think you have this talent of speaking or nope? No. Um, I mean, man, even as a faculty member, (laughs) uh, I I don't honestly, but I don't really know what to do with, with this in a sense that, um, that's what I want to say. What I would say is I, I don't know. I don't know how it may have evolved because I, I didn't set out. I mean, I didn't, when I started this faculty position seven years ago, I didn't say, Oh, I want, I want to give speeches around the country and equity and education. Like, so I first heard Brian speak at Sabre or the society for the advancement of biology education research, their online series striving towards inclusion in academic biology. It's a fantastic series all along. I recommend it. You can find it just by Googling Sabre, S-A-B-E-R, seminar series. And you'll see that they had monthly talks from speakers from all over the country talk about diversity and inclusion efforts. So I highly recommend that. I resonated with Brian as soon as he started speaking. And so I worked with other graduate students in my department to have him join remotely and give us a talk. He talked about education for freedom. And it's such a fantastic seminar that you can actually find through Sabre's website. I highly recommend it. During the hosting that I was doing with Brian in my department, I was fielding questions and he laughingly or jokingly suggested I should host some sort of media show, podcast, something of the sort, because I was doing a pretty good job of asking questions and interviewing him a little bit. I was I, I was open to where the program would take me and take my grad students and take our work, but um, one of the first invitations I got to do so was somebody who heard me give a research talk, and he asked me. He was the provost of a small school in Indiana, actually, um, and he just asked if I could kind of expand on those themes and have some meetings with his faculty and. Um, but I think it's speaking kind of like teaching. Um, one of the things that inspire me about being in the classroom is, is really the humanity of the experience, right? I, I, I'm good, I, I get the technicalities and backward design and learning outcomes. I, I'm with all of that. I'm not dismissive of it. But you say you used to be a comedian, but I'm, I'm a lover of, of, the, of the performing arts, like, you know, stand-up comedy, improv theater, live theater. I mean, I have missed those things in the pandemic, like really missed it. Um, and this is, you know, I've watched, I watch a lot of movies as well, and I've watched theater on screen, but it's it's not the same, <laughs> right? And and I, I think you have to love that stuff 
and be in it and and i mean i don't perform not good but but when you go in the audience and feel that energy you have to tap into that to understand fully what i'm saying right so when i started to to teach as a grad student and this is lab we're talking about so most of it wasn't really you know didactic i i did embrace the power the potential power of spoken word and and spending some time really thinking about how you articulate things and how you tell a story you know i come from the griot tradition in the west african tradition of storytelling right and so whether it's it's protein folding or you know how salsa dancing was last night like that that is the mode i will always tend to go to so i think what you and your colleagues perhaps saw a few weeks ago was i just bring that when i'm in that space right i don't i don't kind of take anything for granted and um it is important to me that I have your attention attention captured. And so, I'm, you know, I tell my wife, I'm very harsh on myself after every um, every keynote address. And this is like two, three, four times a month. And, you know, so I, I don't take any of these things for granted. So so your question kind of implies, well, is that, you know, is there a connection between that and, and my Baptist father? And the answer is probably yes. But, but, but that's the thing, that's the interesting thing with adulthood because, I mean, this is just me and my interpretation of my life, but I feel like you get to a point where you, you have enough of the social and intellectual maturity to, to interpret your past in ways that you couldn't when you were, say, 19, right? Um, so, so, I mean, I, I don't practice. I don't go to church anymore, right? But I grew up in the church. I went to church every Sunday pretty much until I left Trinidad, right? So... In, in that time period, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, one day I'll be teaching in a class and I'll bring all of these things I'm seeing. And you, want, you don't think of it that way. But it, it doesn't mean those things don't influence you or impact you, right? And and so there's there's an element, yes, of what I do, I think, you know, bring some of those those affects to bear on, on how I want the classroom to feel and this sense of reaching for something higher and looking within yourself and being respectful and understanding our shared humanity, no matter what we do, that I think is is beyond church buildings is actually true of the classroom as well. Um, and it's also true when we gather together and talk about equity in higher education <laughs> as a you know, UW Department of Nutrition. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Like you're mentioning you're, you're trying to tap into and create a... S- a specific sense of emotion in the audience, which, you know, also having done a little bit of performance writing comedy, you have to anticipate what you want to lead your audience on a specific path and then take them on the wrong term. There's some surprise, therefore like a laugh. Um, But it's still anticipation, anticipating that emotion. And the typical science seminar drives me nuts. Oh God. Because, don't, get me, don't get me started on that, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I figured you'd be like on the same level as me. It's like I there's a bit of a novelty for five, ten minutes, and then I'm typically gone after that. And it just no one I I've if I bring this up, people will be like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. But I've never heard about this like larger discussion of like, oh, maybe we're doing this poorly. That said, uh, that's why I'm like so appreciative of you. Like in your talk, like you are thinking about the audience the entire time, and I was engaged the entire time. 
because you are trying to make me feel a certain way. It's it's a combination of facts and emotion, which is really lacking in science sometimes. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes feel sometimes people feel that um, when you bring in the emotion part, it, it's done at the like you have to sacrifice the quote unquote rigor of your work, right? You can't talk about you know R squares and regressions and protein folding and have emotion as well. So I'm not I'm not saying everything needs to be a theatric performance, but I'm saying once you are in front, you are actually in fact performing. We just choosing science to suck at it, right? So, you know, you you can actually present these very highly technical things in a way that engages people's senses. It's it's a a very normal and natural human thing to do, and it is beyond me. I, I'm with you, man. I've and I'm harsh, right? Like not rude, but harsh in that. Yeah, five minutes in, I I, I could I could, I'm out. I'm out. I'll I. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look forward. I mean, look in the general direction of the individual, but, you know, and of course, you know, you know how we are in science, right? There's somebody has to ask the question because how would we know you're smart if you don't ask a question? You're like, you know, you didn't have a question, right? Like you literally, and I, I would just like to echo that point. You don't have to echo it. We heard the point. Like yeah. there, there's no echoing. The, <laughs> boy, yeah. Science seminars are like, you, you look, Ben. You say you're a comedy writer. I I hope you've considered, because I have, but I don't have any talent in this area. I would love to see on TV one day a show like modeled in the style of Parks and Rec, but about higher education. Because I I don't know about you, but I'm on campus, and to me the jokes write themselves. I I like you. You wouldn't even have to put in much work. You may just have to plagiarize some of the stuff you see <laughs> and say, yeah. Yep, that that should be a good pilot. <laughs> yeah, I have. I think since I've really started becoming like upset with people's presentations, I will start daydreaming of my like closing seminar for the PhD, and I'm just thinking like, okay, my requirement. I, I've just been told that I have to do a presentation, right. but not specifically about like how I should do it. So I've thought like, if I can get the professor I work with looped in. I'm just going to start out my presentation with like 15 slides of, diff of different types of bees and like, we'll just keep going. And, and I'll just say like, you know, I, I was told to give a presentation and then I'll play with my professor. He's like, no, you're supposed to give your presentation and your research. He's like, okay, like, all right, I'll get there. And we just keep flashing through lots of different stuff. Um, give the presentation, but then also thinking of that, the audience, when they're going to start losing that attention, mm. then you can just put up another picture of a bee and then you've got people <laughs> loop back in. Um, so yeah, I've got thoughts. It's not a whole sitcom yet, but <laughs> I definitely want to play around with it. Please do, man. Please do. And yeah, at the, as long as the science is sound, right? It's like you're saying, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a theatrical performance in an art context, but it is an actual performance. So also like at the same time, when you're, you're thinking about, uh, actually, giving quality, I think, lectures probably to undergraduates in grad school. Was this like happening at the same time when you started thinking about essentially like teaching of teaching and pedagogy? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the I, I think I got lucky because that, that pivot point happened very early in my doctoral uh, pursuit. So 
So during my master's, I was very traditional. In fact, I didn't teach at all. I was in, a, in an RA. But during my PhD, um, I think like second semester when I taught that first class, um, I mean, I got to tell you, Ben, it was it was like a calling. It's like a road to Damascus moment. You know, you <laughs> you're going to do one thing, and then the light shines from above and says, "No, this is this is what you're meant to do." Um, and it's it's something that I I really hold dear to my heart because I know a lot of people who do fantastic jobs, get paid very well, even enjoy it, but it's not a calling, right? And you know, you use the word calling because it's something you respond to and you respond to it on a continuous level. And it's, 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 it becomes more on the paycheck and the titles and the pathways and all of that stuff. It becomes these bigger social questions that you're trying to answer, right? If the question is about education and equity, you have to be prepared to do different things, perhaps outside most academics' comfort zone, <laughs> to help answer that question. Some of it is going to be research. Some of it is going to be excellence in the classroom, but some of it is going to be things like what you're doing now to bring out people's humanity, you know, podcast work, film work, keynote speeches, faculty development, um, you know, partnerships with, with the business community. I mean, you know, you have to be comfortable knowing that there's not just one way to do this, but I, I am forever grateful at being inspired um, in that knowledge at, at the beginning of my PhD career because it gave me the time to start to cultivate things towards that aim so that by the time I graduated, um, I was competitive enough to have the position that I have now. Did you also, during grad school, start to get a management style that you felt was uh, aligned with your values too? Like now, as a professor, you're... Uh, in charge of other people and fostering their development. I'm sure there are probably some people that you, that did a really great job and some things you'd want to improve from other mentors. So you're asking about my management style or management style that I observed or both? Uh, both. I more observed than I had my own in the sense that as a grad student, I didn't really manage other students per se, except I was in the classroom. I was also a head TA. So there was that, um, and I, I saw that less as managing and more as really building a collaborative team. And I really worked with some wonderful people at the time, all of whom are still good friends of mine. Um, but it, it was honestly, I mean, I, I had some really good mentors, a, a couple, three, right? And I, I think without them, I wouldn't have been able to survive my grad school because to, to be brutally honest, not everybody was happy with my decision <laughs> to go the teaching route and to put so much energy into that and de to develop scholarship around that. Um, that was at that time viewed as, you know, not real scholarship, not a thing you have to learn. Um, you know, and there, there were varying levels of passive aggressiveness around that, right? you know. But but I, th I think that's also the powerfulness of the power of, of something being a calling because you know, those things don't bother you as much as if you were unsure about what you were doing. Um, and like teaching, most faculty members weren't taught how to mentor, right? I mean, this is the weirdest faculty preparation pathway. I, I, I mean, the things that you have to do as a faculty member, and then you think about what you're actually trained to do in grad school. 
the mismatch is so horrific to, to the point where it's almost kind of criminal. And you, you wonder, how could anybody expect any faculty member to do any of this stuff correctly? Ben, I heard of the word chart field string for the first time when I got this job. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you know, you know what you have to do? You have to pretend you're, you know what they're saying and then go look it up real quick. Like, there is a lot of building the plane while you fly, right? But to your original question about mentoring, uh, and, and people have asked me this, and I think it's actually important for grad students to hear this. It's easy to get discouraged and, you know, put down by some really egregious acts of mentoring. Um, and, I, and I'm with you that things should be better. We need to do better. I myself run a center for mentoring excellence. You know, we need to do better, right? But I, I, I feel like I've been able to look at places where, or examples in my short career where, People didn't really know how to mentor well. I actually still don't consider them bad people. It's never a personal thing with me. That's not how I roll, right? I, I saw it more as a lack of knowledge. And I vowed to not treat, you know, my grad students that way or my mentees that way or my undergrad advisees that way. Um, and, and to look at what I saw wasn't working and, and use that to really think about what I know would work, right? So to me, mentoring teaching, advising, all of this for me falls under the umbrella of education. I use the same model. It's about dialogue. It's about listening. It's about, you know, not assuming that you are there to be, you know, imprinted by me and to follow my path. It's to listen and hear you articulate your thoughts, support your evolution, know that things might change, you know, be supportive of your goals, even if they're very different to mine. And, and you know, be... Uh, alert and, uh, um, you know, aware of if this is going to be a good fit for you, right? Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good lesson to learn, and I'm really glad that I had that lesson in grad school. Yeah. So now when you have mentors, are you really open and honest to say, like, you know, I'm trying my best here. I'm not going to know all the answers, or I'm not going to know every direction that you should go. You mean you mean when I have mentees, right? Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yes. In fact, um, you know, I initially you asked me for the two-minute spiel of the lab, and uh, I, I told you in that spiel that it was deliberately vague. And you know, the question I ask every grad student who's interested is, "How do you plan to impact the world in education, and how can my program help you realize that impact?" So it, it ends up, it means it's more work for me, you know, which is its own thing, which is fine because most of my class students don't work on what I work on. <laughs> like we, we all actually <laughs> have our own projects. You know, we have science communication coming out of the lab. We have metacognition work coming out of the lab. We have, you know, motivation theory work coming out of the lab. Like, and my NSF, my, my grants fund different things and, you know, I, I can't fund them on those grants because they're working on their own thing. So it, it, it ends up being very collaborative. You know, at each lab meeting, somebody's bringing something that relates to their area of study. But I want them to have that agency. I want to help them cultivate that kind of individual scholar, you know, level of scholarship, as opposed to, you know, you are a tangential scholar to Brian. Okay, so I want to go back to make sure we get to your position in the present. So 
after you wrapped up your PhD at Florida International University, did you do a postdoc before you went to Rhode Island or did you hop right in? I hop right in. I graduated in early May with a PhD. I got a call from the dean of this college the afternoon after my graduation. Um, my first son was born two weeks later. And then five weeks later, I was driving up the 95 to Rhode Island. Wow. With yeah. Him, with him in tow. Yeah. I imagine that is also a hard transition to, like you were saying before, like you're building the plane as you fly it. And also now you've got a kid at a new place. Right. Right. Yeah. It was, it was a lot. There was a lot happening in that year. That, that 2014 year was quite the year. Um, but we, we survived it. So. Uh, what do your kids think you do? I'm always <laughs> curious, like, what do small kids define, like, scientists slash professors as? So, I have a second son. He just turned four. According to him, I'm always in a meeting. <laughs> so, no matter what time of day it is, what day it is of the week I'm coming home, the question is, how was your meeting? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, my, my eldest son, I notice he kind of goes back and forth when he tells people what I do, which is a whole other, I don't know why he tells you what I do, but um, it kind of goes back and forth between scientists and teachers college. I'm also imagining that your mentoring style for your graduate students may be similar to your parenting style where you might be more explicit, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and saying like, I don't know all the answers, but I'm going to just try to make you the best version of yourself, my kids, you know, um, instead of trying to push you into a certain box. You know, you're, you're right, Ben, but I, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't know if you have kids or not, Ben, but Having, you know, children, having children for me, at least, um, it, it's really a different phase of life, you know, um, and it's, it's wonderful. I, I, it really is, ultimately, <laughs> but um, you, you learn a lot about yourself through parenting and through wanting to, to get it right. And the, the key difference with my grad students and my children, I mean, I love my grad students, I love my undergrad students, but you just feel like the stakes with your children are higher, right? They're going to be with you for at least 18 years. <laughs> um, hopefully not a day more. Um, but, <laughs> and, and, and so you, you haven't gone through, you know, childhood yourself and my wife's a teacher and I'm a college teacher. And so we, we get how this whole thing works, you know? And so you see how little control you have to some extent on some of the influences they will have, but you also don't want to hyper parent and try to control every variable. Yeah. I'm going to talk like a lecturer now, right? Control every variable that predict their outcome, right? You know? um, so, so yes, there, there's a lot of that. You want him to be him and you want him to have some discovery and you want to guide and facilitate and not not direct, right? Um, but he's also seven and he also needs to follow some rules and, you yeah. know, be clean. Like, you know, I, mean, I feel like we have to have some non-negotiables and, and 
And then, of course, then now they both are also very different personalities. And so my elder son is a, is just like nonstop energy and he will challenge and he'll find all the loopholes and all the rules and, you know, argue you. And at some point it's like, look, man, I'm not negotiating with said Like I'm not, nego- <laughs> yeah. so, you know, but his brother is a lot more. Okay. You said it. Okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't really want to argue, you know. So, it's, so you'll overlay those unique personality characteristics on top of just trying to get this right. Yeah. It's, it's challenging, but it's a fun challenging. Yeah. It's fun. Like when I've been asking, um, you know, life science communicators, uh, political scientists, you know, these experts in all different realms on this podcast about like their kids. Um, it's like, okay, like you have this specific realm of knowledge that lets you deal with um, the general public who might be somewhat combative, combative, and you've got the skills to kind of de-escalate that or shift the argument back to what we know about facts. And then when I ask him, like, okay, like, how does that translate to your family? And it's like, all bets are kind of off. Like, it's completely different. But it's just, it's so true. Like, no matter your expertise, like, you're human at the end of the day. And, you know, stuff is going to get to you, um, especially when it's, like, your kids or people that you know. Even if you have the best logic to, like, (laughs) follow up with it. All right, I'm going to ask you two more questions before we get to our game. So I am really curious, how do you recharge and take care of yourself? Um, uh, pre-pandemic or during the pandemic? <laughs> it could be both. I don't want to date your podcast here, but I think I already did. Um, well, well, first of all, I, I will say that that what you just said is, is, is very important to me. I am, um, you know, I, I work pretty hard, but I, I'm also very sensitive to the burnout culture that permeates higher ed and the, the, the kind of, you know, people who feel like if you're not working all weekend and 90 hours a week, then you're not doing it right. And I, 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 I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's right. I don't think it makes for good family life, good relationships. Um, and, I mean, quite frankly, maybe I'm just not that bright, but like I, my brain shuts down 4 or 5 p.m. on a Friday. It's already, it's already, you know, happy hour starts humming. <laughs> a little buzz that grows slowly louder and louder until I pull up at my favorite watering hole. That's how it goes. There, there are many, and I, I work very minimally on weekends, usually on Sunday to kind of prep for the weekend and thing, but, you know, weekends with my family, my boys. Um, but I have hobbies that I love, right? Um, I have friends who, very close friends who I spend a lot of time with when I can, whether it was Zoom, you know, some who are, you know, live near me. Um, I, I I am a lover of of rum and beer, like collector's items type stuff. So, so you know, we have some, I have a couple of friends with whom I go back and forth on things that we like to try and tasting tests and things like that. Um, I, I haven't done it as much in Providence, but in Miami, I was, I used to be huge in salsa dancing. In fact, my wife and I met salsa dancing. And, um, and I, I have tried to be very as careful as I can with some, with some licenses, um, with my physical health, you know, so I do lift a lot of weights and, uh, mostly kind of Olympic training type things and running and you know just just, i'm 41 now right so i want to kind of be mindful of that so and and gym gym is actually well there's the health part of it like the physical health part of it but actually it's a mental health thing too um i I, i'm the six in the morning five in the morning guy and of course at that time there's 
two or three people in the gym. And so that that space, like by yourself, headphones on, complete focus is a really nice way to start my day. I really, really do love it. That that might be my main mental mental health um, treatment, right? Having a regular workout routine. So I, between all those things and just really knowing the place and the people with whom I can feel most at home with, um, that gives me the strength and energy to do all this other stuff. And it turns out it's plenty. So Good. Yeah, I'm glad you have lots of different outlets and a good social network too. The last question I wanted to ask you, because I'm I'm really excited to see where you go in life. And like you at the beginning were joking about running for political office. And I could see it. So I'm I'm gonna ask you like what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, yes, the Dewsbury Rush um, candidacy is going to focus <laughs> on <laughs> mandatory comedy classes for all elementary students. Um, no, that, that was completely a joke. I actually really have no interest in that. Um, uh, so I'll tell you a, a secret. You might be one of the first people outside of URI to know this, um, but I am moving back to Florida International University this summer. Um, I'm going to be the associate director of a, of a division for transformative education, which will kind of expand the resources that I'll have to do a lot of the things we talked about in this podcast as far as um, e- equity in education. So really excited about that. Um, I- I'm really excited about it because I, you know, a friend of mine said to me, you know, societies has, have problems and universities have disciplines. And it's not that we, not that disciplines are bad, but it's that, we need to position our disciplines in a way that we can actually solve problems. And I want this, this center to be the kind of center that looks at the education landscape in whatever format, in whatever context, and be able to, to be a place where problems can be solved, particularly as it pertains to equity. So I, I actually envision being in this space for a while. Um, and I'm really excited to the kind of projects that will come out of it. You know, where this will take us next 10, 20 years, I don't know. Um, will there be a time when I'll, I may aspire to, you know, um, work more with institutional policy at a, at a kind of C-suite level? It's possible, but I wouldn't say it's definite. I um, think I would actually like to retire at a point where I could still physically do things, you know, with other people. <laughs> um and, and I hope I hope that that's the case. Like I hope I could I could do that. Um, I love the job, but I you know would want to be able to get to a point where I could just say, okay, it was it was a good run. Um, so yeah, that's that's as specific as I can get to that question. Um, sorry, it doesn't involve um, an independent run. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Where's the where's the birth certificate? Um, yeah. Um, well, let's see. A friend had it, and <laughs> yeah, maybe I can create a brochure that looks nice enough to like get you into uh, the political <laughs> running candidacy. Uh, yeah, we'll see about that. That's I feel like such an important topic to keep working on, and I'm just super excited to see where you go. Like you said, you're 41, and you got you got some good years ahead of you. Um, and I would imagine the people that you talk to are like, we have to make sure Brian keeps going. Like we need Brian. Um, and I felt like after each, each of the talks that I've seen you give, I am amped and pumped and ready to change things for the better. 
And so I uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm I'm all in favor. Let's keep moving you up. You got to get more and more people as your audience. But transitioning now to our game, first, I need a few suggestions for our activity. Um, so I need a location in a building. So it could be like a stairwell, a uh, lobby. Let's go with lobby. Next, I need a household appliance. A wine opener. Wine opener. Okay. Then I need a cute animal. A rabbit. And I need two genres of books. Self-help and spy thriller. All right. I think this is going to be pretty great. <laughs> okay. So our activity, I'm calling this free speech. I'm you know making this up. So there's not really a name to this, but we are going to be working together to give a speech to our loving audience about how we are tired of wine openers breaking. So we're going to tag team this and we're going to give a speech because I think you're such a, a great order and I'm going to try to uh, emanate some of that. We're going to be painting the bright picture of tomorrow where wine openers don't break down. So, because we're giving one specific speech together, whenever the person not speaking wants to jump in, you'll just say freeze, and then we'll carry on the speech right from there. However, we're going to add a specific genre that we have to give a speech in to each one of us. So, to start, uh, you will be self-help. So, you will have to deliver a speech in kind of like the lingo of self-help books. Mm-hmm. But what's but still about the wine opener breaking, right? But yep, we still have to be inspirational, which, you know, self help might actually be perfect. And I have to be a spy thriller <laughs> to, and give a talk on that. And we'll go for, uh, you know, maybe a minute or two, and then we'll go on to the next round. I, I'll go first to s- start us off. And then whenever you want to jump in, you'll say freeze. And then I can take over by saying freeze too after that. So there was a bump in the night. I walked and I saw that my wife had dropped the wine opener on the bottom of the ground. She was frustrated. I thought maybe there was someone who broke in, but it was just her frustration. She threw it on the ground because it wasn't working again. And I thought to myself, I've had enough of this. I went to the kitchen. I grabbed the knife and I screwed back in the screw that was loose in the wine opener, but it wasn't enough. I figured it's time for us to end all wine openers not working. Freeze. I understand why the wine opener is a source of, of, of relaxation for you. But you have to understand the bigger picture that the only way it can relax you is if the, the motion of the, the screwing goes fully through the cork and gets you to the liquid that you need, then it's not actually going to relax you. So when you keep sending us broken wine openers, it actually impacts the level of, of, of assistance and reflection that, that people um, can get um, from this product. And, you know, we, we're living in pandemic times. Like people are really struggling with their mental health and I need these wine openers to work perfectly. I mean, I, I can't understand how... <laughs> You know, you can send a product that doesn't allow the full rotation through the cork into the valuable liquid. So, freeze. So then, here I was with this broken wine opener that you have sent me. 
I called the police because I wasn't sure what next to do. They came to my house, they investigated, they found that my wife was subject to a big plot of big wine opener. And I'm tired of big wine opener coming in and ruining our lives. So I'm asking all of you loving audience to join with us and think about the next time you open a bottle of wine, not having cork in your bottle, or the next time you don't have to strain your wrist if it's stuck, and you too can join the fight against big wine openers together. Freeze! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the way I want you to think about wine opening, my friends, is a corollary to life itself. You can shortcut the, the manual wine opening by getting an electric. It's quick. It's faster. It's a symbol of status. It's a symbol of class. But if it's broken, that also means that you might be spiritually broken inside. So I have just published three books on ways to fix broken electric wine openers. If you, if you buy it today, you can get it at a discount. I, I can have the publisher ship some more. But understand that a broken wine opener is no good for you. You are better. You are better than having a broken wine opener in your house. All right? So remember, the cost of my seminar, it starts at $1,500 per hour. You can pick up a book on your way out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Broken wine openers, be gone. We are the, the a community now of only functional wine opening. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a great way to end that one. So we're going to, for this next one, we're going to switch genres. So now you will become spy thriller and I will have to be self-help. And so we're still... We're still in the lobby at some sort of building, but this time we are warning people of the dangers of a new monster-like hybrid rabbit that's out on the loose. We're trying to get them to mobilize and be safe and get away from this rabbit. So I can start again. So here we are. It's the beginning of the day. The sun is up. Just take a breath in. Breath out because you're going to need it because a monstrous like rabbit is on the way. But I want you to look inside of yourself real quick. Think, am I able to outrun this rabbit? You are. I'll tell you why. Because you have been through so much already. And every instance that you've gone through has prepared you to outrun this rabbit. It's time for you to self-actualize and think about the pace you're going to take to outrun this rabbit. Breeze. It was 6 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. The shadows were crestfallen, just like the grayness of the New England winter. You could only see the edges of his flickering buck teeth from around the corner. And those edges belied the monstrosity that was this rabbit. Jason thought he was on a simple bike ride. And after he turned the corner, he didn't even have time to react before the fangs of the rabbit sunk its, sunk its deep, dangerous, dark teeth into the wheels of his bicycle. He yelled, but no sound came out except the frost of the cold New England evening. And with whatever energy he had left, he turned and he ran in the direction of the highway with no real plan other than to escape the monstrous rabbit, but hopefully to find somebody who could either assist him or call for help 
Jason didn't remember what last he fed his rabbit, but he knew when he fed the rabbit, it was not seven feet tall and full of black. And so what transpired between feeding and his bike ride is a mystery he will have to solve later. Right now, he just needed to get somewhere that was warm, out of the New England cold, and away from a big monstrous rabbit, finishing off his bike and probably aiming after him next. Freeze. So this is why I want you to be a Jason. <laughs> you can be a Jason by outrunning those fears. Sometimes they're going to be metaphorical. Maybe they're going to be the trauma that you've had in your past. Maybe it's going to be getting that next promotion. But you can be a Jason. You can get away from this monstrous rabbits, not only metaphorically, but also right now because there is an actual rabbit coming. And so let's all be Jasons. We'll be t stronger together. We'll be Jasons united. And just think, Jason and the Argonauts, they were stronger together. And they Freeze! <laughs> Jason's heart was still beating when he described the incident to the detective. Beating so quickly that he probably forgot details of the entire incident. His eyes were still flush with fear that had he had his thoughts uh, coherently put together, he would have noticed the little tufts of fur at interesting points on the officer's uniform. While Jason was sharing the story of the monstrous rabbit that he thought was his pet, he observed an interesting flickering motion with the, of the officer while she was writing her notes. A smell of the, 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 the mist came over him. And before he was able to protest, he felt the cold of the officer's handcuffs on his back, putting his hands together, clasping him, and turning his head in the other direction in time for him to see the monstrous rabbit coming towards him. Were they possibly working together? <laughs> this makes absolute <laughs> <laughs> We're going to land it. We're going to land it. <laughs> so, just like I just said, there will sometimes be a monstrous rabbit coming after you. Sometimes your friends, the people that you think you can rely on, will turn out to betray you. But don't be disheartened because with this book that I've written, I have captured every single step that you need to outrun your own personal monstrous rabbit and how to get through and beyond the people that will betray you in life. So let's all get on our stationary bicycles together. I'm going to lower the lights and we're going to turn on some pump and music and write out our fears of this now metaphorical rabbit together. So here we go. <laughs> pump it up. <laughs> all right. And we can cut there. Then that was good. I think it was good. I think I think we got in rhythm in the second one a lot better. Um, yes, that's pretty good. Is that, that good. is that like an improv activity? That yeah, that was our game. We did it. Yeah, and it's been fun too. I've thrown stuff at like this at everyone uh, that I've interviewed so far, and, and everyone rolls with it, which is it's great. Brian, I so appreciate you being on the podcast with me. Uh, it's been a blast. I'm so glad I was able to talk to you for a second time. Same here. Same here. You know, I remember when we had the, the keynote at UW 
and I was just commenting on kind of your speaking style, and I said, "Oh, yeah, you sound like you um, you could facilitate a show." He said, "Funny you ask, <laughs> because I do. Would you like to be a guest?" <laughs> so I'm glad, glad we made that happen, man. I'm glad we yeah. made that happen. Did I also position myself to have that come up, maybe a little naturally? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Who knows, right? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but until then, Brian, it's been a pleasure. Same here. Same here. Have a good one, brother. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I hope you accept this episode as a late Father's Day present, even if you aren't a father. I'm not. Like I said, I'm still getting told Happy Father's Day. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush is a production of Deeper Than Data Media. This episode was edited by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Marketing, distribution, and additional support by Devin Lordy and Lauren Schrader. Until next time, be well. In conversations with people, I wind up asking like really personal questions. It's I essentially interview people. I've been told even on dates. Check, check, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, maybe I can, you know, turn this into good versus just like a natural habit that I do. So, so long as you don't end the dates by saying you got the job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) hey listen you made it to the end that shows a great work ethic and i'm happy to say you got the job